Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where you've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing, entrepreneurship, and consulting. And my name is Alex. I am an MD pursuing an Oxford computer science PhD and a Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Topp. Kevin is president and chief executive officer of Beth Israel Leahy Health, where he leads a comprehensive integration plan to deliver better access to care for patients. Kevin received his undergraduate degree from Hebrew University in Jerusalem and his MD from the Hebrew University Hadassah Medical School. He completed his residency in internal medicine at Hadassah Hospital. He spent many years at GE, at startups, now at BI Leahy, as well as in Stanford. We're very, very excited to have Kevin on today. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Absolutely. You know, Kevin, uh, you came to our class in, in our U.S. healthcare strategy class a, a few weeks ago, and it was so lovely to hear not just about your professional life, but about your personal life and, and how you grew up and why you decided to go into clinical medicine. So for those of us in the audience that don't know, are, are not familiar with your story, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood and how and why you ended up pursuing a career in medicine and, and what made you venture off the beaten path beyond clinical medicine now? Yeah, sure. No, I um, I would say uh, to start that I have a, a somewhat uh, eclectic uh, or, or different path. And I think that, um, and I'm happy to talk about it. I think that when I went down that path many, many years ago, it was not as common to... Uh, both come from the sorts of different uh, ideas and backgrounds that I did, but also to choose the variety of different things I do. I'd say now it's, it's actually much, much more common. So um, I grew up in the United States, um, had no thought of or interest in medicine at all. Um, and at the age of 17, I left home. I uh, moved to Israel on my own. Uh, and uh, didn't go to college. I uh, went into the military service there, uh, like um, most Israelis do, um, and uh, sort of that's the path that I took. I got trained as a the equivalent of an EMT, um, and that's in a sense how I fell into medicine. So again, I don't come from this background of a family of physicians or um, having thought about being uh, in medicine at all. I, I, I really randomly uh, fell into it in many ways, but I found uh, falling into it th that I loved it. And I loved uh, taking care of people uh, and sort of felt that that was a real, uh, that, that was a real calling for me and decided that that's what I wanted to do. Israel is much like uh, Europe and, in fact, uh, much of the rest of the world outside of the United States in that you choose your field of study. Uh, you, don't, you don't do an undergraduate degree. You go directly into uh, medical school or law school or whatever it is you, that you choose. And so I, I decided to go to medical school and, uh, and did that, uh, again, in Israel at the uh, large uh, academic uh, center there in Jerusalem, uh, Hebrew University, Hadassah. Um, did my training, um, did six years uh, of a medical school there. I'd say, interestingly, another difference uh, from medical school in this country uh, is that almost all, uh, there are no student loans 
And, uh, and parents don't really pay for a college there. Everybody who goes to university works while they're uh, at university. And the same is true for medical students. The difference between medical students uh, and most other students in Israel is that they have a special dispensation and they are allowed to, in fact, encouraged to work as nurses. And so I spent four of my six years of medical school uh, working uh, three 12-hour shifts a week as a nurse in a, a cardiac ICU. And uh, I can tell you that really it changes your entire approach to medicine. And in fact, even the concept of teams and, um, and working together in a team, which is a, which is a, a widely discussed concept uh, in healthcare now. And, and we know that uh, high quality care is delivered when people work together as teams. Well, that idea of working as a team is really different if you have actually played different roles on a team. And so when you walk in later in your professional career as an intern or as a resident into an ICU where you first work as and for the nurses there, it's very, very different than sort of what we see uh, in this country. And I think well worthwhile. I frequently wonder to myself, what would it be like if all of the uh, medical graduates here first worked in other areas of, of healthcare. You know, when this was first proposed in, in Israel uh, in the early 70s, the nursing unions objected. And they, uh, they understandably said, well, nursing is a profession. Uh, these people are both not trained and they're going to take away uh, jobs from us. But they came to realize that it would actually be incredibly important if an entire generation of physicians uh, first trained uh, as, as nurses. And it really, I think, has changed the face of healthcare there. And again, I wonder uh, what it would be like if we did that here. Kevin, that's incredibly fascinating. I, I actually didn't know that about the Israeli healthcare system. And, and I think that's something that we can certainly transplant and learn from. You know, it seems like 5, 10, 15 years ago that more and more people were going straight from undergrad to medical school to residency here in the U.S., but I think that's changing. Like, even I went straight through, and that's probably one of the bigger regrets in my life. I wish I took a year or two off and did something different. And then when, just three or four years later, when I was on the admissions committee at Cornell, where I went to medical school, people were doing amazing things between undergrad and medical school, oftentimes starting companies, working in consulting, investing. I was just amazed by the breadth of knowledge and experiences that med students bring nowadays. And, and so broadly, I very much agree that we need our medical students to go out and do other things before they enter formally into clinical medicine. Shifting gears here a little bit and jumping forward probably you know, a couple of decades you know, you came to our class a couple of weeks ago uh, to give us advice, of course, and, and to serve as a mentor. But the main crux of why you came is to talk to us about the B.I. Leahy healthcare merger. Um, so in 2019, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Leahy Health officially combined to form B.I. Leahy uh, Health. And as the CEO of the second largest health system in Massachusetts, can you talk to us a little bit about this merger and how has your perspective changed, if at all, as time has passed? And generally, how do you think about the benefits and trade-offs of mergers such as this from the perspective of all uh, stakeholders involved? Well, it's a great question. And I would say a question that I don't yet have the answer to. 
Um, the truth is, is that we uh, formed a very large uh, combined healthcare system, as you as you describe in 2019, and exactly a year after we merged, the global pandemic hit. And we're still dealing with that pandemic. We're still really in the midst of that and the aftermath of it. Um, and I think that the jury's still out on uh, whether or not we'll deliver on the things that we said we were going to deliver on when we came together as a system. That being said, when we take a look back, uh, it's an, uh, I think that it's an interesting market here. Um, we, ha we had for many years a single large player in the market and uh, many much, much smaller ones. Uh, and uh, the cost of healthcare in this state is inordinately high. There are lots of theories about how to deal with that, um, but I think it was pretty clear that continuing with the status quo, one large and expensive player, uh, nobody else able to effectively compete, really was not going to be a recipe for change. And so we came forward and said, um, said to the regulators, uh, we want to be able to do something uh, to change this market and to do something different. And in order to effectively compete and provide services uh, that uh, had not previously been provided, uh, we uh, we want to, we, we need to come together. And, and again, in hindsight, uh, only a year later, as we went into the pandemic, I think we saw some real value to uh, behaving as a system, uh, really, really coming together, um, allowing us to um, shift resources where needed, uh, allowing us to uh, think globally about the lessons we're learning in real time and then uh, push them out. I think that, that are much more difficult to do in a fractured, isolated healthcare system. So um, the other question that I get asked a lot as it relates to this merger though, uh, is it, mergers are difficult. Uh, they frequently don't uh, succeed. Um, and um, tell us as you come together, how are you going to know? How are you gonna let us know that you've been successful in five years time? What are the metrics gonna be uh, for success? And that's a typical question for any business, whether it's in healthcare or anything else. And the metrics that are typically used, I think, are um, not that innovative. So we, we use, and we use in this merger too, many of the typical metrics, financial metrics, uh, things like a margin we'll be able to achieve and market share um, uh, and volume metrics, how many patients we take care of and in what fields. Uh, and then uh, we use quality metrics. Um, uh, a variety of outcomes uh, to look at whether, in fact, we're doing what we said we were going to do. All of those things, though, in my mind, are are what I would call secondary endpoints, uh, because you know we're uh, we're a nonprofit. We're not a company that makes widgets and uh, returns value to shareholders. We're here really to serve serve our missions. We have multiple missions and. Success would mean ultimately that we're better able to serve our missions than we were beforehand. If we go though even further than that, I, I'm intrigued by an idea that we really should get at measuring something different. And I, uh, I believe ultimately that we will know that we have been successful five years post-merger if our patients tell us that we have made a difference in their lives. And, and I, I think that that's actually something that is measurable, but there are a couple of components to that statement. The first component is 
that we are asking people what is important to them. And I can tell you that in healthcare, that's a rarity. So we come up with lots of metrics, lots of outcomes, and say to people, to communities, to this is what we're going to measure, and this is what's going to be important to you. And I think it's rare that we ask people, communities, individuals, others, what is it that would really make a difference to you if a healthcare system uh, was working well? And then that we measure whether or not we're delivering on those things. And I think that there's something there. And I think that uh, forward-thinking healthcare systems should be both asking those questions of the communities and people they serve, asking those questions of themselves, whether they are in fact meeting those needs, and then course correcting when they're not. No, Kevin, that resonates a lot. And it's very timely that you say that. And I'll just echo the sentiment that asking people whether you're doing a good job is actually quite innovative, even though it sounds simple because not enough people do it. Uh, I was at the Islanders game yesterday and my friend, they just opened the UBS arena and, and my friend who's an HBS classmate, his family is one of the co-owners of, of the Islanders. And I was speaking to John Ledecky who owns the Islanders. And I said, so how do you know you're doing a good job? And he said, yesterday he lined up for six hours. There were 500 people in line, just giving him feedback on the first day. Like he did that for six hours because he's like, that's how I'll know just talking to people that I'm serving. Yeah. Um, so I think not enough people do that in hospitals, certainly don't make a habit out of doing that. So, so I'm glad that's top of mind for you and B.I. Leahy. Yeah. Just shifting gear here a little bit, you mentioned COVID and sort of all the changes that have taken place during COVID. Obviously, healthcare has changed significantly in the past year and a half as docs and frontline workers shifted their approach sort of out of the clinic into patients' communities, homes, and, and things like that. The use of telemedicine skyrocketed, making it an innovative and convenient way for many to get access to medical care. You know, big hospitals, including many of B.I. Leahy's rivals, have very robust hospital-at-home care programs. Dana-Farber just started a new venture fund to fund cutting-edge research and new companies coming out of its own ecosystem. I was working there last semester. I think the use of decentralized clinical trials exploded during the pandemic. So, And digital therapeutics, as we know, is taking off. So I think it's safe to say that as our challenges have increased during the pandemic, the pace of change and innovation has also gone up. And so what are some innovations that you're personally most excited about in healthcare delivery and any challenges we should be aware of as healthcare innovation propels forward at an unprecedented pace? Well, um, you know, the obvious ones are, are really things that you, uh, you talked about in many ways, uh, things uh, like innovative uses of telehealth and other things. In almost any other in industry, that wouldn't be that innovative. Um, in healthcare, for many reasons, we uh, lag in many of the innovations that we see uh, in other sectors. Telehealth is an example of something that for many years we struggled to see any significant uptake in. Uh, both uh, uh, providers themselves were very reluctant to use it, uh, and uh, we couldn't get patients to use it. We would frequently see there were lots and lots of offerings. The the uh, the challenge was never uh, the lack of technology, uh, but rather uh, culture and um, a general unwillingness uh, to try it. And pre-pandemic, uh, we saw use of telehealth in the low single digits. Uh, in this, and, and this is for years was true, uh, despite efforts of all sorts of people uh, to push it. Uh, come April of 2020, uh, in the space of uh, 30 days or so, as 
all of the uh, ambulatory care clinics shut down, uh, what we saw was it took off. And it took off um, in an amazing way. So we saw uh, upwards of 90% of our primary care and in some of our specialties uh, using uh, telehealth platforms. Uh, and that, that was amazing. By the way, um, it really, again, was not about technology. We found in many cases that a simple telephonic visit was excellent. Um, in some cases, you needed the video and other things, but it was really not about uh, the latest and greatest new feature. Uh, it was about the idea that we could do these things remotely. Unfortunately, uh, we've seen a real regression uh, as the pandemic um, has moved, shifted into a new phase. It's uh, certainly not gone down to low single digits anymore, but we're we're down in the fifteen percent of our of our primary care visits are now are, are now telehealth, and I think. Um, uh, you know, we'd like to see that increase. I'm going to talk about another uh, innovation, which isn't related to the pandemic, but I think is an example of the kind of thing I'd like to see more of. Again, there's a, a tangentially use of technology, but it's not about technology. And it's, the, it's this, uh, the concept of open notes. So open notes um, is, is actually something that originally came out of uh, the Beth Israel many years ago, and now is spread around the country, and, and in fact been adopted in some ways. There are requirements, uh, but for at the federal level, um, but it, it it's this concept that all of your digitally captured notes are not the hospital's notes; they're your notes, and you should have easy access to everything written about you, and. That doesn't so so when people first hear that they sometimes think well any electronic health record will give you a summary of those things and I'm that's fine that's actually not what I'm talking about I'm talking about every single piece of information every written note even though it wasn't actually written in a language for a consumer it's your information not the healthcare provider's information and what they found when they started to provide people access uh, to all of their notes is that it was an effective intervention, just like giving a medicine. We can measure outcomes and we see we get more engaged patients and there appears to be some evidence that it improves outcomes by doing that. Um, it has like other uh, interventions, like some medications, it has side effects. Um, and that's one of the things people were worried about, uh, but the benefits appear to far outweigh uh, any disadvantages. There is an example, and this is just an anecdote, just an example of something that is not specific to a, a, a single piece of software. It's not specific to a set of features that you need to have. But I believe that's actually true innovation when you're having people think differently about the information that's available. Again, just one example. That's very helpful, Kevin. I think about this sometimes as well, because in America, we place such a premium on patient privacy and for good reason, because patient privacy is important. But uh, I think it's also important to think about 
you know, I was working for a couple of years uh, as a surgery resident, as I mentioned at, at BI, and, and I caught the first six months of the pandemic, even during the height of the pandemic, when it was so important to get information very quickly about patients, it was sometimes very challenging to do so. And that's just because I think the infrastructure of communication between different hospitals, between different EMRs is just not where it needs to be. And, and so I think nationally, we just have to have a conversation with all stakeholders involved about how do we value privacy and how do we optimize for privacy while also being able to serve our patients in a fast, innovative manner. And I, and I think it's a very challenging conversation and patients need to be involved in this conversation. You can't be prescribed. Yeah, you're right. This issue of privacy and the trade-offs of the ease of flow of information versus privacy is an interesting one. One that's somewhat unique to this country, but I think it goes, the difficulties that you describe in the flow of information and how that impedes providing good care is not just related to privacy. It's related to how healthcare is set up. So I, uh, because I uh, trained and practiced in a different system in a different country before I came here, I frequently get asked, so what are the, what are the major difference? What's the big difference between healthcare provided, say, in Europe and healthcare provided in the United States or the healthcare systems in Europe and healthcare, uh, the healthcare system in the United States? First of all, there's no such thing as the healthcare system in Europe. There are lots of different systems. Uh, although there are uh, certainly uh, overlaps and, and commonalities, the biggest difference between many, most of the healthcare systems in really any first or second world country and the United States is that there's no such thing as a coherent, cohesive system of care in the United States. And that is almost bizarre. That's uh, not true of any other first or second world country. There's no real uh, singular approach to how we're going to allocate resources, how we're going to work together, um, uh, the things that are most important. It's solely guided uh, by the free market. And um, again, that's uh, really very much unique to the United States. And one of the problems with that is in the absence of an organizing idea, in the absence of a coherent, cohesive system of care, we have what are in essence thousands of silos that set up almost as a cottage industry in this country. Um, and um, there's very little incentive uh, to design a system that speaks uh, to others. Uh, and, and ultimately, I think that is that impedes uh, high quality care. No, I, I, that resonates a lot and, and certainly sort of underscores what we've learned at HBS for the past couple of years. I'll have some uh, international friends who will ask me, hey, like, you know, we have 30 minutes. Can you explain the US healthcare system to us? And I'm like, I, you're going to need more than 30 minutes. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. I've been thinking about it for the last 10 years. And you're right. It's, I think cottage cheese is just a really nice way to put it. It's very siloed and there's sort of incentives internally, but the incentives don't really jive with another silo. And it's just hard to sort of square that circle. But Kevin, this is such a fascinating conversation. You know, I want to shift gears because I want to hit all of the topics that I want to ask you about. And you've been such a wonderful mentor to so many people. And so I wanted to speak about mentorship. Almost all of our guests so far have talked about you know, shared stories with us about how vital their mentors have been in their career trajectory. Mentors 
our folks who are there for us at very important junctures of junctions of our professional and personal life. And often as you sort of grow together, mentorship blossoms into a very beautiful friendship. So who are those people in your life and how did they contribute to your success? And, and now that you've had such an amazing impact on healthcare, how do you think about mentoring the next generation of docs who want to have both a clinical and non-clinical impact in healthcare? Yeah, mentorship is incredibly important. It was incredibly important to me. Uh, and I believe uh, I believe in paying it forward. And I believe uh, that it um, any great leader really needs to be involved in that uh, for others. I, I've had a variety of different uh, mentors along the way. And some of the, and, they, and they've been a very different in different ways. A commonality is that uh, many of them have been willing uh, to take a chance on me, uh, spend time with me um, and and take a gamble. Um, uh, probably, I'd say one of the most important mentors I had is a woman uh, who was uh, the CEO at Stanford when I was there at, at, uh, at Stanford Hospital and Clinics um, and really uh, sort of helped me, plucked me out of, I was at the time working in industry, um, gave me a chance and really taught me a lot about what leadership was, about um, listening to others, uh, about uh, focus, um, all of those things, and I've had a variety of them in a bunch in in a, a bunch of different places in my career, have had a huge effect on me. I I um I like to take time uh, to talk uh, to others earlier in their career about uh, the things that they might uh, might be interested in, and I get approached frequently um, as. Uh, commonly, I get approached by uh, physicians uh, who are either in training or uh, early, maybe maybe mid-career, asking me, how do I plan my career uh, so that I can get to do what you're doing? When, when I was chief medical officer, so, I, so that I can be a CMO or now as CEO, how, you know, what are the steps I should take, the jobs I should do, the schooling I should get uh, to, to uh, get your role? And I always uh, respond, well, well, first of all, I don't actually have a clue because none of the things that I did along the way were planned out. And I see that as a feature, not a bug. That statement is not in the least bit radical for your generation. Um, but it was very radical uh, in in my time, and I think even to this day there is a there are a certain type of a certain type of person uh, who can be very tracked, and I would ask ask people to uh, be careful about that. So uh, it's not uncommon, particularly for physicians, those who go to prestigious uh, medical schools and then get into a really good demanding residency to be on a track. And that track is you do your residency at a major academic medical center, and then uh, you continue down and you do a fellowship. And then when you finish a fellowship, you might become an instructor and then an, an associate. And then many, many years down the road, you'll be a full professor. And maybe even when you uh, are, are much older, you'll, you'll become a chair of a department. That's great if that is the path that you're interested in. But there are a lot of other paths out there. Um, and um, I encourage people to do what I call take off the blinders. 
and look around them at all of the different wide world of possibilities. For myself, uh, when I, I, I got involved during residency in use of computers in medicine, I didn't even know that it was called informatics at the time. I didn't actually even have a computer, but I got interested in it, uh, ended up uh, developing a software program. And when I finished residency, was faced with the dilemma of, am I going to go down the track that everybody else goes down and that everybody expected of me, which is, okay, I finished residency, it's time to do a fellowship. And the first thought was, well, I was interested in computers and medicine, so I will do a fellowship uh, in medical informatics. But I thought about that. And I, I really realized I was tired of being a student. I wanted to do and not just learn. And so I left clinical medicine and uh, went to work at a startup. This was many, many years ago. It was, a, it was uh, around end of 99, beginning of 2000, the height of the first tech bubble. Uh, moved my family to this country, came to a startup uh, in an entry-level position. Um, and three months after we arrived, uh, the bubble burst and the company uh, went bankrupt uh, three months later. This is after the company had gone public over, you know, a market cap over a billion dollars and not a penny in profit. And then the bubble burst and it went bankrupt. And um, I recall uh, we were now in this country. I, I was a physician, but didn't have an active license in this country. Uh, we, we'd come here and uh, thinking, well, this was a mistake. I should have continued down the traditional path. Um, but uh, ended up uh, persevering. Uh, actually, the assets of the company were acquired for pennies on the dollar out of bankruptcy court. Um, so I ended up going along with the assets, the tables and chairs and code and everything else uh, to work for a large corporation, GE, that I never imagined or never planned on working for. Um, and developed, you know, had a, a fair number of mentors there, learned a lot there. And then out of the blue, got a chance uh, to go to Stanford as a chief medical information officer and then chief quality officer, chief medical, uh, chief medical officer. And then 10 years ago, uh, got asked about coming out to Boston uh, to be CEO here. None of those things were planned. Uh, and none of that was a linear path. Um, I tried a bunch of things and failed at a number of those things. And I think ultimately the, the role that I'm in now uh, is a combination of I was lucky to be in the right place at, at, at the right time. Uh, I had great mentors who encouraged me and pushed me. Um, and I collected a set of different experiences, healthcare practiced abroad and in this country. Um, uh, start up a large corporation, uh, academic medicine, West Coast, East Coast. And ultimately, when I was offered the job here in Boston, I think it was because I had this sort of weird, eclectic background, not in spite of. So I would encourage people to take off the blinders and try different things. Kevin, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. That was really inspiring. And, and there's just so much there, right? One thing that I've personally been very surprised by talking to all of the really, really interesting and successful people we've gotten a chance to talk to through the podcast is that everyone says something similar. Like they haven't over-engineered their path. They, at every stage of their life, tried to figure out what they were interested in 
and try to make the right decisions along the way, but they didn't have necessarily a 5, 10, 15, 20 year uh, timeline. And I think that's difficult for some of us in clinical medicine, just because it tends to be a little bit linear. You know, some people when they're three years old, know they want to be a neurosurgeon. And so they plan their entire life, go to the best med school, best residency, best fellowship, And to an extent, I think that's fine. I mean, you need some folks to be really, really good at that. But I think for if you want to have a well-rounded out career, I think more and more docs actually, like you said, need to take off the blinders. As we say here, need to go off the beaten path. And another point I wanted to mention, I just want to sort of commend you if I can at the level of self-awareness you have, like, you know, you mentioned sort of, you know, it's all the skills and the decisions you made, but also getting lucky or having the right mentors along the way. I think a lot of people who've been very successful don't have that level of self-awareness. And I'm thinking back to one of my leadership professors last year at HBS. He does a lot of really cool research on mentorship. And then one of his interesting insights out of his research was that for most people, but especially for quote unquote outsiders, maybe minorities, maybe people outside of this country, the most important thing actually isn't hard work. Oftentimes it actually isn't sort of going to prestigious schools. It's actually someone on the inside taking a chance on them because you you just need to be in some sense pulled into the circle and then your hard work and all the amazing schools and all the amazing experiences you went to or you had, you can actually make use of it. And so I encourage mentors out there who are in a position to change someone's life, to take a chance on someone who may have a non-traditional career or who may be from outside of the country. I think we need to do more and more of that. And, and it sounds like we, all of us here certainly ha- have benefited from that. I grew up in Bangladesh. You grew up in Israel. Alex, you grew up in Syria. Uh, and so uh, we know that when we're in a position to help other people, we'll certainly take chances on uh, people. So I really appreciate you making that point. Yeah. You know, and I, it's absolutely true. And I, I find that when I go out and look for great people to work with me, I am much less interested in the letters they have after their name uh, or uh, the school that they went to. And I'm much more interested in what they have actually done. So um, I, for instance, get asked all the time, Speaking to uh, to HBS graduates mm-hmm. uh, or uh, HBS uh, uh, folks, um, what, do, how important is it to get an MBA if you want to uh, do the job that I'm doing? Well, first of all, I don't have an MBA, um, although I spent years at GE running a PL, and I think that that sort of was my MBA. But my answer to that question uh, is, you should go get an MBA if you are really interested in learning what they have to teach you. But if you're going to do that so that you can get three letters after your name, so that you can put a a check next to the box uh, and then move on on that linear path, a slightly different linear path, I don't think that's worth it. Um, So think about the reasons that you wanna do it and what you're gonna get out of it. Uh, and, um, And that's how, again, that's how I look for people. That's how I think about people. Uh, I love to have great uh, MD, MBAs, for instance, but it isn't the MD, MBA that makes them interesting to me. It's what they have actually done and what they're interested in and what they're capable of doing. That's much more interesting to me. No, completely agree, Kevin. I think 
a lot of times people use the MD and the MBA and certain letters PhD as a proxy for for diligencing someone, and and that's superficial. I, that, that's sort of the first step, and and you really need to dig deeper into uh, into exactly what people did. You know, we could talk forever, but for the sake of time, I, I want to pass it along to Alex, who had a few questions for you. Sure, great. Thank you, Shad, and thank you very much, Kevin. It's a really great discussion. And I mean, to the point of mentorship, when I think about my trajectory to getting here, like a couple of years ago, I was just practicing medicine in Syria for like $30 an hour. And like today, I'm, I'm $30, sorry, $30 started, a month. A, a month, I'm oh, sorry, not an hour. <laughs> That's not Syrian salary. Uh, but but yeah, I'm t- I mean, today I'm, I'm in Oxford and, and HBS. And I think like the key people who actually helped me get here are my mentors. And I I really tend to view my mentors as my board of directors to whom I am actually accountable. One of my really good mentors was Professor Michael Silberman from Israel, with whom like I've done a lot of work while being in Syria, and he ended up writing a letter of recommendation for me for the roads. So certainly it's a topic that I really appreciate. I want to dig a little bit deeper into the point of informatics. So I'm doing my PhD in computer science, working on healthcare AI with electronic health records. And I certainly appreciated the point that you've mentioned about open notes. I think one of the biggest problems in healthcare today is that we don't connect the different sources of data of the patient together. And if we're able to connect all of these sources and digitize them, we will be able to massively improve outcomes because so many of the poor outcomes in healthcare are driven by really preventable causes and AI can help us mitigate these risks and and really prevent them before happening. So I'm really curious to know from your experience at GE, at Stanford, how do you view the space of health informatics evolving over the next five to 10 years? How do you view AI being integrated, especially now with the the metaverse becoming a reality? So I'm really curious to know your thoughts. Well, I I guess I would start at the end and say, I view it still with a fair uh, amount of skepticism. And now let me take a step back and expand on that a little bit. Um, I spent a great deal of my career in healthcare IT, uh, in in informatics, again, small startups, uh, large companies, um, in fact, dealing with uh, data, um, uh, gathering data from disparate sources, uh, cleaning it up, normalizing it, and then using it for a variety of different reasons. I think the honest truth, though, is uh, when we look at look back over the last twenty to thirty years uh, at at health infor- the field of health informatics and healthcare IT, the hype has far exceeded the reality of what has been delivered. Now, at some point, we'll catch up. And, you know, I think we all believe that it's around the corner. I think we believed that it is around the corner for many years, and, and, and maybe this time is different. Um, but today, the hype has far exceeded the reality of what's delivered. We have lots and lots and lots of uh, data. There's no, uh, there's no lack of data. Um, we don't have good, actionable information. And, and I think that's the, the real promise of, of use of AI, um, not to generate more data that we then don't know what to do with, but to help us understand the data that we have and are gathering in a variety of ways, uh, and then uh, make, it, uh, make it actionable. We saw um, some good examples of this, uh, even uh, during the pandemic. Um, we saw, well, we saw bad examples and good examples. We saw really an inability to uh, forecast accurately. And then we saw people regroup and try uh, different ways of taking the information that we have, uh, taking some innovative information. So not just looking, say, at electronic health record information, but looking at cell phone data um, and adding those things together 
to give us a sense. And this was very, very, not in an academic sense. It was very important uh, to healthcare leaders like myself who needed to forecast what was going to happen in the next week, two, three weeks around hospitalizations. And um, the, the absence of the ability to do that effectively, I think, um, meant that we lost lives uh, as a result of it. So incredibly important, still in its infancy, uh, and the promise hasn't, uh, hasn't yet uh, been met. I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that we will get there, though. Kevin, this is really great insight. And I remember that during my work in the PhD, so I was working on electronic health records data to predict which COVID patients are going to require advanced respiratory support in the hospital. So that was really during the first months of the pandemic as part of the UK national response. And one of the biggest challenges that we have was we were really limited to the electronic health health records data and a specific subset of that. And so I, I certainly appreciate this point. And I think one of the really interesting things that are evolving now is the field of digital phenotypes and biomarkers, where yeah. we're able to collect all this information from patients and similar to using a an in vitro diagnostic or a companion diagnostic to identify a biological biomarker, we can actually identify a digital biomarker and use that to inform personalization of therapy. So that is a really interesting point. And I guess I want to shift the conversation a little bit to the lingo that physicians should develop to play a role in the future of healthcare. So one of the interesting things that I've noticed within our lab is that we have a combination of computer scientists who are really technical experts, and we have medical doctors who are domain experts. And it's the ability of those two sides to actually talk with each other that allows innovation in the space. I mean, Kevin, you've been in the field of clinical medicine, you've been in the field of informatics, you've been in the field of management, and you've achieved tremendous success in all of them. And I think you've been exposed to the lingo in these different fields. But for the medical doctors who are just entering training, they don't necessarily have that lingo. And so it's difficult for them to actually communicate across the lines. And I remember in one of the conversations that we had with Alex Diblius, who is the ex-global co-chairman of Goldman Sachs, and he's a cardiac surgeon. And he was talking about the point that he thinks that in medical education, we should expose medical doctors to more nonlinear and untraditional experiences. And this goes to the, to the first point that, uh, that you discussed with Shad. So I'm curious to know your thoughts, Kevin, how can medical education and medical residency improve to improve the ability of physicians to understand the broader ecosystem and to communicate with the different players within the ecosystem? So uh, there are a couple of pieces there. I think, first of all, um, y- you know, we, in many ways, still train physicians the same way that we trained them 30 or 40 years ago. And then we scratch our heads as to why we don't get change in our healthcare system. Now, everybody knows that uh, healthcare is an apprenticeship model, the classic see one, do one, teach one. And if we both, so, so what happens is, is that we, have old models of care, and then we put trainees learning in those environments, in the old models of care. And I think there's an interesting question around chicken or egg. Maybe we need some new models of care and mentors uh, for people to be trained in, environments that people can be trained in. And until we do that, we're not going to see new types of trainees. And those new models of care don't just mean don't train everybody just in a hospital, train them in a clinic. They also mean train them in different environments 
and train them in use of different tools. A different tool isn't just the use of a DaVinci robot, it's use of AI, for instance. And I think that's still uh, not something that we're very good at. The other thing though, is I'd say, I'm not completely sure that it's realistic uh, given how much, uh, how much there is to learn for a medical student, for a resident and others, to think that we will train them in everything outside of their field also. What's as important uh, is that we have translators. And I think uh, actually one of, uh, if you were really to ask me what my most successful role has been personally, it's been as a translator. I don't mean a translator from Hebrew to English. I mean a translator of different worlds. And so uh, that's a translator of the tech world to the, uh, or the IT world to the healthcare world and vice versa. That's a translator of the uh, healthcare world to the business world. And I think there's a subset of people uh, that uh, can do that and should be involved in, in leadership in, in doing more of that. A lot of my career has been spent translating concepts. And I think that's really important because this idea that we could train everybody and everything probably is not realistic, but we could involve more translators along the way. Kevin, that's really great insight. And I think one idea that I really find interesting is that most of the innovations in a specific discipline they're not created in that discipline. Like most of the innovations are brought from another discipline. So having that ability to translate is so immensely valuable. Yeah, yeah. And I guess maybe I want to shift the last question that we have around the, the social role of CEOs and leaders. I want to go back to the example that you've mentioned of the U.S. healthcare system being similar to the cottage cheese in terms of it being a decentralized system. And I think in a decentralized system, it's very important for actually leaders to advocate for change. We had a recent session at HBS with Chip Berg, the CEO of Levi Strauss, in which he talked about the role of CEOs in speaking about social issues. And we constantly face this topic nowadays, and there is a debate around whether it is actually the role of a CEO to advocate and speak about a social issue or not. So I'm really curious to know about your thoughts on the topic, given your role as a CEO and as an MD. How do you think about it and how we should think about it as an emerging future leaders? So i say a couple of things. I, there is no question in my mind that CEOs have a responsibility, not just a minor role, a responsibility to uh, advocate uh, for change uh, and for social justice. Um, and I particularly think that that is true uh, for those of us in healthcare, because these are not uh, separate and distinct ideas. Uh, and we know uh, that the concept of social determinants of health are as important, if not more important, than most of the other things that we work on. So it's directly related to the field that we're in, um, to, to being healthcare leaders, acknowledging the ills and then fixing them. But I would say, uh, there's a danger and a, and, and a potential pitfall there. And that is um, that we talk, uh, but don't actually do. And that in some ways is worse uh, than not talking at all. Uh, so, I, I, you know, my, my fear is, uh, particularly on issues of social justice, um, that, that, you know, many of us woke up uh, only a year and a half or two years ago. Some of us have been talking about this for some time, but really uh, haven't affected significant change. 
um, there was a genuine uh, interest and desire to speak uh, more forcefully uh, as a result of of things that uh, we saw over the last uh, two years or so, uh, whether that's the murder of George Floyd uh, or um, really other uh, pretty clear instances of, of systemic racism within healthcare. But if we're honest with ourselves, that didn't, th- those issues did not appear out of the blue a year and a half ago. They were there long ago. Uh, and we didn't do a lot uh, about them. I think you have a lot of leaders now who genuinely care and, and are talking about it. But healthcare has a long history. The healthcare industry, particularly, is very focused on the crisis du jour. And uh, it could both be true uh, that as leaders, we care deeply about an issue that is genuine, and also be true that in a year's time, uh, another crisis comes along and we sort of put the last one aside. And that in some ways is my greatest fear uh, that we um, uh, address this, the issues of, of uh, really of, of the, need, the need for change uh, as a crisis du jour and then move on to something else uh, next year. And that can't happen. And we need to find a way uh, not just to talk about things, but actually to affect change and not just to affect change in the short term. Uh, This is gonna be uh, really forever, we're gonna need uh, to work at these things. Um, I I was uh, speaking with a group internally about the work that we need to do and uh, laying out uh, some of both the issues and and the plans. And someone said to me, well, we, we can't afford to get this wrong. And I understand that statement. I actually don't agree with it. Um, I believe strongly that we are going to make a thousand and one mistakes um, and we will get it wrong. Um, the, the point will not be that we can't afford to get it wrong, but whether or not we will pick ourselves up and keep at it again and again and again when we inevitably get it wrong. And, and that's more important than uh, any words uh, that a leader might voice right now. Uh, that's more important even than any set of actions uh, that one might put in place this month. It's really the long-term commitment uh, and the actual change uh, that we are part of affecting. And that's the thing that I care about deeply. Kevin, this is fascinating. And I think just building on your point, would you agree that what we cannot measure, we cannot improve, and therefore we need to actually have measures for how we are performing on these social issues and keep ourselves accountable. And I guess if you can also give us an example of how BI Lahi has implemented some of these principles. Yeah, um, we're still thinking this through and we're doing a variety of things. I think it's a, a commitment to and action on provision of care uh, to lots of people. Um, to uh, it's it's a commitment to um, a variety of other social determinants of health, uh, not just the writing of a prescription, but understanding that if someone doesn't have a home to go to, it's unlikely they're going to fill that prescription. Um, and it's um, uh, it's involving other voices in figuring out what's wrong. Back to what I was talking about uh, almost at the beginning of this podcast about how we're going to know uh, whether we were successful if our patients tell us that they've made a difference in their life, we've made a difference in their lives. It's involving other voices uh, beyond the traditional voices that we typically ask for 
um, in helping us understand the things we need to work on. And we're definitely doing those things now. Last question from our side, Kevin, is how can our audience learn about the work uh, that you're doing and follow the impact that you've had? Well, um, I would say uh, we're pretty public about what we're doing. Um, you, people are welcome to follow us, but I don't think that we're uh, that different or unique. I, I would encourage people not just to learn about what we are doing, but again, I'm going to go back to a phrase I used again and again, take off the blinders, look at lots of different ways that you can affect change uh, and be willing to try different things. Wonderful. Kevin, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank Great. you, Kevin. Thanks very much. Yeah, right. bye-bye. Bye-bye. Chad, that was a fascinating conversation with Kevin. Really enjoyed it. And I guess my main takeaway was around the translational point that he's mentioned. Um, there has been a bunch of academic research that indicates that virtually almost every problem has been solved in a discipline or another. But the existence of information asymmetry between different disciplines is the reason why we cannot propagate these solutions ac across different industries and different verticals. So I think the point that Kevin mentioned about his role as a translator is immensely powerful because I think that a lot of the problems that we face in healthcare are similar to problems that we face in other industries. Like I think about it in a way that the skeleton is the same, the flesh is different. And so I think that by having these different experiences and different verticals being working in the insurance sector, being working in venture capital, investment banking, being an entrepreneur, a researcher, or any other vertical, and then being involved in healthcare would allow you to actually bridge that gap between those two different disciplines um, and bring innovation from one to the other and merge them together. So I think that was a very powerful uh, point that that Kevin mentioned, and and it 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 slightly shifted how I think about our roles as cross disciplinary leaders. No, completely agreed, Alex. I think that that's a fantastic takeaway, and I'll echo your sentiment that this was one of the most insightful conversations I've had, and it was really really nice to be able to speak with Kevin, who's the CEO of the health system where I was working for a couple of years as a surgery resident. I think my takeaway, there's so many, but I just wanted to hone in on the last thing that he mentioned. One of the last things he mentioned about the crisis du jour. I think I agree that there's a lot of people in healthcare who care a lot about social issues because it's just so intimately linked with not just sort of healthcare outcomes, but just how we perceive ourselves in society. We perceive ourselves as advocates for patients. And in order to do that, you have to be somewhat holistic in, in how you approach that. It's not just strictly treatment-based, but it's also preventative. And it's not just strictly preventative, but it's also well, when you're in that realm of prevention, you have to think about all of the different social determinants of health. Um, but what Kevin mentioned was interesting, right? Like, because there's some so much wrong that's going on in the world, What's challenging is keeping your mind focused on these problems and then executing over and over again to solve them. It's very easy to get distracted from one year to the next and try to move on to different problems. I think you need different people working on all of these problems in parallel, communicating with one another and working very hard to solve them. And when things go wrong, not abandoning that problem, but doing the hard work of actually solving it. 
So that's sort of my takeaway from this week. You know, join us next week and on our next episode where we'll continue talking to dogs who have ventured off the beaten path and are doing very interesting things. And remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast and to catch our latest episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. Take care.